Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of New Books Network. I am your hostess with the mostest of the language and media and communications channels, Lee Pierce, they and she pronouns. And I'm so excited today to be inviting my good friend, colleague, awesome writer, researcher, and rhetorician, Wendy KZ Anderson, the author of Hot Off the Presses, Rebirthing a Nation, White Women, Identity Politics, and the Internet. In Rebirthing a Nation, Anderson details how white nationalist and alt-right women refine racist rhetoric and web design as a means of protection and simultaneous instantiation of white supremacy, which conservative political actors, including Sarah Palin, Donald Trump, Kellyanne Conway, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and Ivanka Trump, have amplified through transnational politics by validating racial fears and political divisiveness through coded white identity politics, post-feminist and motherhood discourse functions as a colorblind gilded cage. In this book, Wendy reveals how white nationalist women utilize colorblind racism within digital space, exposing how a post-feminist framework becomes fodder for conservative white women's political speech to preserve institutional white supremacy. And with that, I'm very excited to welcome Wendy to the show. Wendy, are you there? I am, Lee. Thank you so much for having me. What a gracious introduction. Thank you. Well, you wrote most of it. <laughs> so, so tell us about, I mean, this is an awesome book and it covers, it covers a lot. We got Tea Party, we got Sarah Palin, we got Kellyanne Conway, we got Donald Trump, we got websites, we got coding. I mean, it's all the white supremacy. The only thing we really don't have is Al-Anon or sorry, Al-Anon. Yes. Al-Anon's a different thing. Yeah, it's really the only thing because yeah. this book came out, you know, it's, it's at this point, it's been written for a year or two now. Yes. Yeah. And well, everything. Right. Go big so or go home. Okay. So yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, you know, this is a really interesting uh, journey. I think I went on to write this book. Um, it began with a class that I was taking with my advisor at the time uh, in communication studies, Dr. Charles Stewart, uh, that the class itself was in uh, the re- like extremist rhetoric on the internet. And I remember being in this class and, you know, after doing a master's thesis that was on the riot girls, I had envisioned that I would do something with the same group and kind of develop it further. And Dr. Stewart pulled me aside and he said, have you ever thought about researching something you don't agree with? And I was like, no, but okay. So I, we talked about it a little bit more and I thought, okay, well, you know, as a white person, very cavalier attitude, racism sucks. And I say that because, you know, coming from a multiracial family, uh, but being a white person, there's things that I did not realize, obviously, about racism and, and struggle, like, have to continue to work to engage further. Uh, mm-hmm. And in particular, that kind of began this journey of this book. And it was really interesting because as I was doing this work and I was working with another scholar, Rachel Einbarner at Purdue University, who's in sociology, I was in her qualitative methods class and I started even saying, well, maybe I should, you know, go and interview, like go meet people in public, like groups of white nationalists. And very fortunately, she said to me, uh, no, like, I don't think it's a good idea. <laughs> she said, um, you know, Kathleen Glee did this. I said, I know. And she's like, yeah, no, you might want to, um, for safety reasons, take a step back. And I think it was really wise because I think that there is a respect of boundaries that I think is really important that for myself and, uh, and others that I think are really significant that kind of facilitated this research in a digital space. And as I kind of continued with this journey, and I'll, I'll try to make it concise, I ended up 
realizing that I was going through this work and starting to engage in particular the women, because I thought in my mind, I was like, well, the really flaming stuff of white nationalism is typically the white men who are doing it. And the women's rhetoric seemed really nuanced. Like I was like, this is really Mm. interesting because of the way that they're couching this material. And so that's where I started, you know, saying, I want, I want to look at the women in particular, and maybe this will be easier on me in the sense that they're really like flaming, you know, like, like express stuff that was so violent, um, overtly violent. Uh, I was like, I don't, I don't really want to put, put myself in the position. What I didn't realize is, is how trauma inducing the other stuff would be, but that's a whole other story. Um, that doesn't even compare to what, you know, black and brown folks go through on a daily basis. But what's interesting is that I started figuring out how to ethically engage this material by working with scholars that did things like critical race theory, um, such as Mm. Samantha Blackman at Purdue in the English department. And she actually works, you know, she's, her scholarship is, is mind blowing to say the least. And I felt really fortunate because when I was interviewing at Purdue to come, like I was, I was interviewing them to see if I wanted to go and do my doctorate, th- doctoral degree there. I remember meeting Samantha and I was so intrigued by her uh, personally and her, and her work. And for that reason, you know, I was very like lucky to have classes with her and then, and then be able to ask her to be my co-chair on my dissertation. And it really changed the work. You know, she was giving me books like Derek Bell's The Permanence of Racism Faces at the mm-hmm. Bottom of the Well. And that just, it changes the way you see everything. Like, I remember reading that and just being like, oh, yeah, I had no clue. Uh, and so what's interesting is this work just started kind of developing. And when I remember defending my dissertation um, with my committee and having, you know, Don Burks, who was also on the committee, uh, who's a, you know, prominent Burkean scholar. I'd taken quite a few classes with him. And I have mixed feelings about Kenneth Burke. I think that there's some things that are very engaging about his work. And then there's some things that I think are, are, are contained in certain ways as all of us, right. Because of our perspectives, um, seeing is a way of not seeing. Right. Uh, but what's interesting about this committee that I pulled together is that as I'm defending this, I'm talking about where I'm going to submit, submit this book because I realized that it was moving in that direction. Like it, it kind of turned into this, this very large unwieldy project where what is, I think, typically known as the fourth chapter for some of us, uh, depending on how you write your chapters, where it's the analytic chapter, turned into four chapters itself. Mm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, my, very wisely, Charles Stewart was like, uh, you have four chapters here, Wendy. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, I divided it up. And then, you know, and I, at the time I was working at Michigan Tech uh, as an assistant professor, I had you know, taken this work, I was finishing it up, and then I was moving it to this book you know, trying to figure out what to do with this. And I have these four chapters. I'm like, okay, I can, I, you know, I'm shifting things around this very giant amount of materials and um, it gets fast tracked at Rutledge. And I was like, Oh, this is awesome. Right. And, and, and this is an important part because this journey of trying to move this book and the development of it, that journey influenced the book itself because I started just studying white nationalist women mm. online in particular, and then defining what that was and whatnot. And then, my journey to Michigan Tech and honestly having this back, this book fast tracked for, for Rutledge um, made me feel really good until it got rejected. <laughs> I was like, oh, and that took a while to get over. But what's interesting is when I moved then and chose to come to the University of Minnesota, that's when actually 
I started seeing a change in the way this book was developing and in ways that were very healthy as well, where I started looking at the implications of how the rhetoric that I had already been researching and the mediums that I was already researching that, the, you know, the digital infrastructure was playing out in mainstream politics. And that's why it started covering so much because I just started seeing these through lines and fortunately talking with scholars, honestly, like Ron Green, um, who was kind enough to, you know, sit and chat with me at points. And he's like, have you ever thought about looking at the alt-right? And I'm like, I don't want to look at any more of this volatile, traumatic stuff, but yes, I will do that. And then we started to him and I would talk and we talk about Sarah Palin and the tea party. And I'm like, yeah, no, totally the through line there. And so this project just got bigger and bigger. And then I'm like, I have to put boundaries on this. And, and yeah. just like any project, like a dissertation, a thesis, like, it's amazing how we see things associationally and then we have to figure out what our argument is so that we can narrow it down. And and what I started realizing is that all of this culture of white supremacy was so pervasive within not only these extremist groups where it's more overt, even though it's coded, Mm. but then that same coding is played out, you know, plays out in, what people would traditionally identify, I mean, as, you know, we have mainstream politics, but also if, you know, in the epilogue are organizations that we would want, we want to believe are, are progressive or liberal or, or whatnot, we still see these things play out, which means that we don't, we resist learning with difference. And if we can't engage that, we can't understand why our, we can't challenge the epistemological foundations that, formulate our field. So when I think about this book, it covers a lot, but it covered a lot because of how I saw things that were connecting when it comes to white supremacist values, ideologies, uh, and their, the way that they create infrastructures and their classifications and how those things then facilitate white supremacy in multiple different organizations and contexts. Well, and I think a couple things are fascinating about this intro, um, and then I want to talk about this this intersectionality versus contained agency argument that I think, you know, at least it was my big, I mean, if I had to just summarize it in like a sentence, that was my big takeaway from the book, um, is number one, through, I assume you're, I assume you're starting to foment this idea around Tea Party, is that, am I, am I right, right about that? Like, early dissertation was like, right at the end of Tea Party-ish? You know, it's funny, Tea Party was, I mean, it it was on my radar, but not on my radar when I was writing the dissertation, because you know how we go underground when we write that stuff. Like I, I really had locked down on so much of my world um, when I was writing it. And it's not that Tea Party wasn't a part of it. Like I was thinking about it, but I don't even think if I had to guess. Where, I would, where was the jumping off point for the dissertation? What What do you mean? Like, where, where did I begin? Like, with the, like, what was the first case study? Was it Trump? It wasn't Trump, right? It was way before that. Yeah, no, Trump wasn't even a part of the dissertation. Well, because this is Trump what's important even... because yeah. this is what I was going to get at is because wherever you kind of were thinking about at the time, you predicted white women electing Trump. Which, which, <laughs> I don't know about that. No, no, which was like, I think a lot of people could have predicted it, but also a lot of people were not predicting it, right? Like when white women elected Trump over Clinton, everyone was like, what the fuck? Yeah, you know? that's true. You look back and you're like, of course they did because we really underestimated how racist this country was. Yes. And by we, yes. and by we, I mean white liberal, white liberal humanists, right? I don't mean like people of color were probably already up on this. So that's really cool is one is that this argument you're making, people have been making since Trump got elected, but you were actually thinking about this much earlier. So you track almost a genealogy 
of, you know, Palin through, et cetera, et cetera. Up, you know, up, <laughs> now you got Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, all these people are playing Sarah Palin's handbook. Yes. And so the, you're yeah. almost creating a, a, a code of, of how that happened, which is fascinating. And then on top of that, um, it's, it's cool how you, it, people talk about dog whistle politics. I don't know if you've heard that phrase, but mm. like people are getting very hip to the racial coding but yours is so much more nuanced and sophisticated. And it really shows what a, rhetor- what a rhetorician can do in a way that like, just like a, you know, like somebody who's just kind of looking at this stuff with broad strokes, they get some of it, but they don't get the multiple ways that it shows up. And that's, what's really like the motherhood piece. Yeah. That's a whole new angle to this. I haven't seen before. Well, you know, I gotta be honest with you having babies changes their whole life. Um, and I, gotta, and, 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 and I, you know, I was a great parent before I had kids. And what I mean by that is you can envision this notion of perfection of what parenthood should look like. And then you have children and you got to deal with all of the other stuff that you learned, like how you were coded as a child on how to mm-hmm. raise children. And then you got to figure out all those pieces. And what killed me is that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm that motherhood piece started coming up in the white nationalist literature. But when I had my first child at Michigan tech, and then our second child, you know, we had when I got to Minnesota, that's really when I started seeing stuff, like really opening my eyes about how these fears of safety come up when you're a mother in particular, because of things like gender inequity. And I think that that's the kind of thing that became really key for me is I, you know, I empathize with being, you're going to discuss sound horrible, being resistant to feminist politics. And, and it's not that I think we should be, it's that it, I remember, you know, struggling to identify as a feminist for so long. And there's an empathy in that with reading white nationalist women's materials, as well as alt-right women's materials. Yet, if we don't engage that part of our lives and our identities and that trauma, we don't grow. We don't learn and grow to figure out how the inequity continues. Because what we want to do is we we kind of fall back into these places where we really want things to be equal, but we're different and we function differently. And it's not that I don't think we can keep like engaging these systems in certain ways that can open it up to learn with difference. It's that that gender inequity piece became really key to understanding how white women and why white women would defend and become these kind of made in shields for white supremacy because it allowed, yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a really important point. So in the book, you kind of lay out sort of intersectionality, which is the, which is the thing we, we want, right? The conclusion is all about amplifying intersectionality as a corrective, yeah. but yeah. that oh. what we get in white women's alt-right discourse is, um, is a contained agency, which yes. is where like you draw bounds around it, but because they are women, it works within the far right discourse of identity politics to kind of like, oh, we have diversity, we have women. And so then the issue of (laughs) race almost gets covered over because it's like, well, because they don't recognize intersectionality, any nod to difference covers the whole. And that's kind of the basic layout of the argument that plays out in each one of these chapters. Am I, am I understanding that right? Yeah. And I think that Andrew Hancock talked about oppression Olympics and that really became a key part of this is why we are really struggling with coalitional politics. When we think about Karma Chavez's work is because, you know, if we can coalesce on our experience 
of being other, like that process of being othered. And we can focus on those most vulnerable populations um, who, you know, when we think about, again, Karma Chavez's work and, and Kimberly Crenshaw's work as kind of the central voice in this because they've been othered so much. Yeah. What it does is we have this possibility of reorganizing to facilitate social change and not feed into, you know, especially with progressive politics, this white savior complex that's offered by Teshu Colt, right? Like, I think that this is one of the challenges we have is that when we're engaging white supremacy and we're, as white women, because we're already other, like this is that chapter with Palin, like we have other status the minute we walk in because the frame of reference um, is white men. And even when it's the universal, you know, I mean, that, that no, I think about, um, work done by multiple scholars, in particular, um, uh, Lisa Nakamura is one that I think was really fascinating and influential in my own work about how people should not be forced to choose one singular identity, you know? And, and, and I think that the challenge is, is that it's easier for others if we, if we choose one identity, but that's not the way we work as, as humans, right? And, right, and right. you know, we're constantly shifting and adjusting and, and whatnot and not letting someone read your identity to you is really key. Yeah. And, and, and when I think about this work, that's the biggest challenge is that white women, we have recognized, I think a lot of us recognize that we're othered and we don't, nobody wants to be othered in the sense that, you know, we're not included. We're, out, we're in the out group. And so the hard thing is that carrot on a stick, which is, I agree with you. When you think about contained agency, you know, and this, this concept of contained agency, I think is interesting because it started with a colleague and I at, you know, another grad student and I at Purdue, we were doing, you know, in Samantha Blackman's class, we were working on materials that were uh, about pedagogy and mm-hmm. in particular video games and pedagogy. And I started thinking about why, you know, what the engagement of women and why there was this constraint for women to engage in video games a lot of the time, because this is, again, a lot of the great work that, you know, Dr. Blackman was doing at the time. And, and it was, and, and things that I found interesting. And um, this great colleague of mine, Juliet Ludiker, and I were talking about this concept and working collaboratively on this, pro- collaboratively on this project. And this, we kept playing with this term, contained agency, constrained agency. We we're talking with other scholars that were at Purdue that were advising us. Um, and we talked about moving it a step further, but what's interesting is it kind of hit a point where we were like, okay, we've gotten this to where, where it's at right now and we're going to, we're going to wait for now. And I remember, you know, even emailing her and be like, Hey, this concept is the, the original concept of contained agency is actually fitting this better. Um, when it looks, when mm-hmm. I look at how this functions, um, when it comes to how we understand the way people are trying to engage their oppression and, and in particular you know, what I'm focusing on for, for my frame set as white women is that, you know, it's much easier if we can, you know, make this move where we say, okay, I don't want to look at all systems of oppression. Let's look at my, my individual, um, let's individualize my oppression because then I can potentially figure out ways that I can empower myself individually versus look at it as something that's more, much larger, which is, can be more overwhelming, right? If we want to be empathetic, where we're actually looking at how historically, you know, biologically, we have these cultural oppressions that are built into the systems and institutions in which we exist. Yeah, and actually, it's so, I mean, it's so weird how 
things show up at just the right time. But I've been thinking <laughs> about the same thing. And I came up with the word inscription because inscription in geometry is when you like contain a circle or a geometric figure so it doesn't touch another geometric figure. Mm-hmm. But it's also like a form of carving into the historical record, right? The word inscribe means to like write into permanence. Yeah. So I was like messing around with that. And then like this term came up. I was like, oh, that's the term I needed. So thank you for giving me. Thank you. So as, as always, it's about what I needed. Um, but yeah, can you give, could you give us some examples of what contain like some of your favorite? I know you talk about shield maidens, which I thought was a great metaphor. Um, you talk about Palin a little bit. And like, wh- what do you think are some examples of what that contained agency looks like and how it and how it uses womanness, right? Sort of the gendered other to stand in for any other kind of other that obviously the alt-right is trying very hard to foreclose. Well, it's interesting because you go to the alt-right and immediately my my examples went went to the ones with looking at how Ivanka Trump would do this for her dad. You know, when we had this immense yes. thing mm-hmm. break, right? We have this huge, you know, access Hollywood, you know, breaking of this of this tape of Donald Trump talking about grabbing somebody by the pussy, right? Like this is, this is huge, you know, and this is a really big deal. And what happens? We get advertisements and promotions from Ivanka Trump about motherhood, right? Right following that, you know, I saw that and I was like, oh my gosh, this is really fascinating because Mm. all of a sudden she's talking about what, what a great mother she is. And she's using her, her identity, the simulacra, to be able to try to shift the conversation into ethics and family values. Or it's the Sarah Huckabee Sanders who, you know, after we hear, you know, this horrific, again, um, comment that comes out about how Donald Trump was describing um, different people from different countries, right? The S you know, whole countries. Like I was not sold on this. And what ends up happening is we see Sarah Palin coming forward and, you know, she comes out with the pearls and, and not that pearls are, you know, I'm not demonizing pearls, but I'm saying (laughs) the identity (laughs) is, you know, she's shifting that conversation again um, in a way that, that kind of pushes this idea. Like she's just shifting the conversation to talk about, you know, how people are, are, you know, marginalized. And I I think that's interesting because that becomes, you know, she's bringing it back to the historic um, discussion. Wait, no, I'm trying to remember this exact thing. And now I want to go find it in the book to make sure I I cite it correctly, but she shifts this conversation in a way um, to talk about how, you know, we need to make sure that everything's equal. And that's what I think is really interesting is that we see this use of the word diversity and the word, you know, the the value of equality that actually comes out as a way to like walk away from the conversation about oppression. And I, I find myself, you know, equality is one of those concepts or even free speech that all of a sudden as ideographs, I'm like, Oh God, we have to be aware of, of how this is being in, employed as a way to, systematically undermine any form of equity work based on historic oppression, historic continued uh, discrimination that's built into infrastructures of, of, you know, almost every system we have. Like that's, that's frightening to me. Um, But I think that that conversation is not an easy conversation to have, you know, um, this this is something that's overwhelming. And if you've been surrounded your life 
you know, and if you continue to choose to surround your life with people that are, you know, white, you know, middle class or even, you know, and whatnot, like you don't hear these conversations. And even if you don't, people have to trust you enough. People have been other has to trust you enough to have those conversations and not be afraid that they're going to be faced with some kind of apologia. And when I apologia, mm-hmm. I mean the defense of white supremacy where people will justify their bad behavior. And what I mean by that is their non-equitable, non-ethical community focused behavior. And that's mm-hmm. the hard thing is that, you know, we're surrounded with people that will justify because of their own desires, wants, needs, privilege. Yeah. Um, I, I found there's a quote on the top of page 92. I was trying to find the one from Palin because Palin, Palin does a couple things, right. That you, that you sort of parse through really well. It's, um, Thank you. and it's cool too. Cause I was very attuned to the Palin rhetoric. And in fact, I don't know if you know this, but so the, the neocons who bought stock in Facebook way back when, they used Facebook, Facebook algorithms to quite literally design McCain's running mate. And based on, based on the user data from, from aggregated Facebook, and this obviously has to do with like your work on coding and how, because yeah. you're not just looking at speeches, right? Like in the, like in the, yeah, you look at code and digital play, all this crazy stuff that I don't even, I can't, I can't believe you can do all this. <laughs> I, but he literally designed Palin. But it was too soon. Like the internet was ahead of the voting block. And so now you're seeing like Marjorie Taylor Greene. You're seeing the rise of like these fanatics. Like they're post-Palin, Palin's. Yes. Yes. And we're going to keep seeing um, them because they, yeah, they serve and, a purpose. Right. But they I, claim their outsider status. Yeah. They, they, can, they collapse outsider status with motherhood status, with woman status. Yeah. And so all those things together kind of right, insulate them. So I'll read you the Palin quote and tell yeah. me if this is the one you were thinking of. Um, the policies coming out of D.C. are allowing us to feel empowered really allowing us to rise up together because moms kind of just know when something is wrong. It's that mother's intuition thing. I think we can tell when things are off base. Of course, they're not right. And we're not afraid to roll up our sleeves and get to work and get the job done, set things straight. Moms can be counted on to fight for their children's future. You know, and but of I, course you got to add the word white in, in brackets right, literally every you. time she's right. And that's what's so, so tricky about this discourse. Well, and it's exactly. And on, on top of that, it, it focuses on the family unit, condensing like it condenses immediately down to your children's future and when you hear that even as a parent like and as a mom in particular it's the idea that we want to be able to facilitate the success of our children but in the same respect like they have to facilitate their own success like this is something i'm learning with my own kids is one i have to learn how how to let them grow and learn and and learn how to make mistakes like this is really important for them because that's actually how they grow is they make mistakes and that's really hard to do. But additionally, not pushing so that our kids get opportun- the, the most opportunities over everyone else. Because that, yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. one of the biggest challenges. And trust me, I've struggled with this as a parent. You know, we we have the opportunity, and I'll mention this because I think this is really key, is that, you know, we've had a lot of educational choices as parents because, you know, my partner and I are both teachers, are both educators. And so we've learned about these systems. We have a lot of friends and family that are educators and that gives us a lot of educational privilege because we know how to work some of these systems or navigate them, right? In the same respect, like if I choose to put my kid in a system or in an organization that continues to basically facilitate his or other children's, um, like they treat them differently in certain ways, they get reinforced mm-hmm. about that that treatment and that discipline. So, you know, one of the things I think about is, you know, I remember watching 
you know, my, my own kiddo in a classroom who was struggling because his peers of color, his black and brown peers were getting disciplined and, and the same behaviors by a, by a little white child was not getting disciplined. And I, I, I mean, I, I was in a classroom enough to see this, you know, happen a few times and I'm just like, uh, you know, and then we got to figure out how to have this conversation with the teacher and whatnot. And in the same respect, I also can't run and make sure that my kids get everything possible. Because Mm -hmm. if we look at education as a competition, competition of resources, we lose the community element of it. We lose the idea that they are learning with difference. And that's the value set is that we want them to learn with others. Because if we try to just collect all the resources to ourselves, what happens is what we've seen with individual feminism. What happens is that you are trying to facilitate only your family, only your little tight knit group, but potentially competitive, if it's competitive at the expense of someone else who doesn't have those privileges. So we've taken, you know, we've had to be really strategic about our educational choices for our kids to make sure that the systems themselves are actually set up to make sure equitably uh, before we're willing to take our kids and shift them into another system. And, and it's, it's been hard work. This is really hard work, but I think it's important because it can't just only be about you and yours. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like that's not, yeah. that's not, that doesn't actually facilitate community. Yeah. Um, well, and it's not right. So this is kind of something we're kind of jumping around the book, but I, I like it. Yeah. I dig it. Sorry, um, good. <laughs> these things, no, no, they're so, they're so inner. I mean, I can imagine there were a lot of ways you could have divvied up this discourse, but yeah. in the end you talk about amplifying intersectionality as sort of like where you want this to go. Right. If, if not, if not contained agency of the alt-right, like what do we want? And one of the things that I think you say that's really important is that we think of intersectionality as a theory of oppression. It's like, well, this explains why some people are oppressed more than others. But it's not just that. It's no. also a theory of how all of us get get better, how society advances. And you don't, your kid, like as long as your kid is taking opportunities away from other kids that don't look or sound or have the same, you know, your kid isn't really getting better. No. What they are is, what they are is a, it's the same. It's like inoculation, right? It's like they're growing up yeah. in a bubble now. That's exactly and that's it. not That's not advancement. That's sterilization. That's exactly it. And what happens then is that, you know, one of the biggest challenges, I think, even as a parent is making sure that you actually do have other people educating your children. And this is, this is really challenging when you even think about it in a pandemic. And I say this knowing that my kids were distance learning and have been distance learning the entire time because of some of our health concerns. And mm-hmm. one of the challenges, I think, and we've had the privilege to do that because that's the other thing that's important to note here. Um, one of the challenges that I think about when I think about, you know, kind of considering, you know, this, I, now I've lost my train of thought. Sorry. This is the challenge. I do jump around and then I lose my train of thought. No, it's okay. You were talking about other people needing your kids to be educated by other people. But, yes. you know, right now everyone's being educated by people that look like them because right. of the pandemic and, and because of charter schools and right. systemic supremacy right. and stuff yes. like that. Yeah. So one of the biggest, cha- thank you so much. So one of the biggest challenges is that, all the ways that we've learned to learn our epistemology is really based on us, right? And our parents and here and, and our communities. But the challenge is when you don't go outside of the, like you don't have a, like a diverse group or diverse ways of learning or perspectives, the same challenges that you have had, your children will have. It's like the idea of if you don't deal with your own trauma, your kids are going to have it. And that's terrifying, right? Right. You pass yeah. that on. And that's one of the biggest things that, you know, why, why in particular, when I've even been thinking about my next book, self-care is the focus. 
and, and, and mm. self-love. Because if we can't figure out how to navigate the trauma that has informed who we are, what happens is our kids then learn the same coping mechanisms that are, can be problematic or even in our families, similar coping mechanisms. And those just keep perpetuating themselves generation and, and get potentially even get worse. And I've noticed with my own kiddos because they reflect behaviors that we do, my, my partner and I, that I'm like, Oh, we need to work on that. Like it's amazing mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. you learn once you have a young child who is watching your every move. And, you know, parents say all the time, they're like, my kids are listening even when I think they're not. And they are. And it's really forced me to come to terms with myself in ways that I think are really healthy. Only if I'm willing to actually come to terms with those challenges that I have in healthy ways, you know, mm-hmm. and, and with help, because in all sincerity, like if we hang out by ourselves, it's very easy to continue down those unhealthy paths. You know, finding someone yeah, and, that can help us, you know, and mentor us is really key. Well, yeah. And I think healthfulness always has to be described as like anti right? There is no health as long as your health is oppressive. Well, healthfulness, and, oppressive healthfulness right? is not healthfulness, right? No, exa- well, it's, 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 that it, it's gotta be less co- like the competition is not healthy. It's not, you're, we're not competing yeah. for health. Like the, and should we actually, I should say that again, <laughs> we should not be competing for health. Yeah. Right. And I say that because right. after a pandemic and we're not even there yet, right? Like we see that mm. in our current system, we are, and that, that, yeah. that's what makes this really difficult is that our lives should not be con- competitively contingent. And mm-hmm. I think that it becomes revolutionary as, yeah, as Audrey Lord talks about, you know, self-preservation is, is very revolutionary as a result, you know, and I think the same thing when you look at, you know, what brilliant Shara, Sarah Medes has talked about too, about, you know, we've got to, right, racial equity involves trauma and, and being able to figure out how to engage what we see in our lives as problematic. Yeah. So we're Speaking of what we now. see in our lives, you do some awesome work here with coding whiteness in digital design. <laughs> yeah, I do. I did some. And it's, I mean, and like, don't get me wrong, the rest of the book's great, but this is one of those things where you're like, wow, I don't know anybody else that could have written this chapter, even with a ton of work and thought, right? I could like imagine myself <laughs> maybe sitting, maybe sitting down and doing some of the Palin chapter, not as right. well as you did it, but like I this chapter, that. I was like, holy shit, this is okay. a whole other level. So you want to dig into this and, like, the methodology here and the arguments? Because it's really cool. <laughs> Thank you. I'm I mean, as cool it. as white supremacy can be anyway. Okay, right. Exactly. Well, and as we talked about, like, this work that I did, I'll talk about it as fascinating. And I'm saying it in fascinating, not in a, yay, I love this. It's in a, this is fascinating because of the ways in which the nuance that's there and, and, and why I think we need to engage it. And I will talk about this because I think this is really kind of interesting. So, um, while at Purdue, you know, I played a, a video games um, with Dr. Blackman because she's brilliant, and I really feel fortunate for that. But what's interesting, I think, about this work in particular is how, when I went to Michigan Tech, and this is where I, I absolutely feel very fortunate for this opportunity to be able to not only finish my dissertation but also work with some of the folks that were at Michigan Tech. One of the things I think about is the opportunity to be able to teach a class in web design. You know, I taught an introduction to web design class there, introduction to game design, introduction to uh, 
uh, what was another one that I did? Oh, digital media. And then I taught digital rhetorics and what was it? Uh, rhetoric and pedagogy and like, like digital media design. I even taught a class and this was actually a, a graduate student who absolutely you know, came to me and he's like, I really want to look at the rhetoric of video games. And I said, yeah, totally, we can do this. And so we did a class, an independent study with him and another student on uh, the rhetoric of music and video games. And the reason why I mentioned all of this digital media influence, because I was doing some digital media work at um, Purdue University, even with Motorola, I did a research assistantship with them uh, designing smartphones, is because all these things helped me to figure out how to engage some of these materials. Um, and on in my free time, which sounds really strange, but this is the, the, the privilege of being able to do education and in particular do a graduate study. Um, I was teaching myself how to, how to code. Um, and I say code knowing full well that people will take that differently depending on how we understand the terminology of coding. But I was teaching myself HTML and CSS so I could teach it at Michigan Tech. And I was trying to understand it in part at Purdue University as I was working through Um, my courses and trying to use different software to help and and applications to help students engage one another in very different mediums. And because I said, you know, at at Purdue, my two areas of study and expertise are rhetoric and media. Um, And in particular, Mm -hmm. social movement, you know, social change, social movement rhetoric and um, digital media. And so I decided when I got to Michigan Tech that I wanted humanities students to code. And, And by that, I mean, learn to write their own HTML and CSS, which was really kind of cruel and unusual, but it's not because what it does is it's, it becomes the rhetoric of code. Like you end up understanding how the language functions in its numeric, alphabetic and character form. And then you got to start understanding the infrastructure of how websites are set up so that you can actually engage how people are designing those worlds. And when I was at mm. the University of Minnesota Duluth, my undergraduate degree, I had a class that was required in computer science and I created the most horrific looking web page you've ever seen, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> I'm still working on my digital design skills, I admit that. So if you look at my stuff, like I freely admit I'll rely on other folks, but I, I'm getting better at, at, at some of it. Um, but it offered me a way into this conversation that I agree with you, you, you don't see people doing. Um, it allowed me to figure out who is uploading materials? Like that's that's the stuff that got me is when people wanted to have this anonymous identity on the uh, graphic user interface. Um, and I could then go and look at the source code and be like, that was says that it's uploaded from this person's computer. Or I was able to go online and use different programs um, that I found online from you know different influences at the time. Um, where I could actually go and figure out who who's actually hosting a site. So who's paying for it? Cause you know, follow that money, right? Like follow that money. Yeah, It's gonna right. tell you exactly who's hosting and whatnot. And people get more savvy. I mean, this is the challenge with, you know, white supremacy is I don't, I don't think it's going away and it just gets more savvy. And so that it, like, it's kind of this, this dance in certain ways, but uh, cause then they cover up their identities and, and whatnot. But I think this is really important in the sense that, you know, what it offered me was understanding about what op- more options that are available online. Because when we're only taught one way to do something, like if we're only using graphic user interface applications. So if we only learn how to do web design 
through certain programs like Dream Dreamweaver, um, which was way back in the day, but even things like Blogger, if we're going to put up a blog, right? I think one of the challenges is that we don't really know the working language that actually can help us to adapt or tinker with the design mm. itself. And that, that tinkering part really offered me insight on how we could shift that conversation or how people would choose even certain layouts or designs or how they would engineer. Like one of my, one of the examples that I absolutely was fascinated by is how people would construct a gated environment online. And I, I was oh, like, gated, and, gated environment is good. Cause that, that echoes the gated community. That's exactly shit. it. That's exactly yeah, it. That's perfect. And I Love was that. like, this is fascinating to me because digitally we create these. I mean, you think about, you know, we have gated communities. Think about our learning management systems, you know, our canvases, our blackboards, you know, all this stuff are there. It's a, it's another form of privilege in gated community. Let's, and, and I like to, to play with that a little bit at points. And I shift what programs I use intentionally to try to engage students in different ways, you know, engage different, mm. different, different ways of thinking because there's so much built into the infrastructure about the way people think we learn within digital communities that we don't actually talk about. We just have to use them because they're the programs that are on hand. And I think when you start learning more about the programs, you learn how to tinker with them and then you can change the way that they're functioning and the way people are going to engage those systems. And so, I don't know, I was really fortunate for that very heavy you know, when I, again, my dual area and, and Purdue really afforded me this with not only my coursework, um, but also with the, I had a lot of agency and choice and I definitely took advantage of that. Um, and I had a, a, you know, an advisor who was, um, you know, well-seasoned. And so then he let me do a lot um, and, and afforded me a lot. And I was one of his last graduate students. You know, I, I think that, you know, and then, and then having, you know, Samantha even who was, so good about, you know, encouraging me to see and and support who she saw in me. Like that, those are the things that I think have allowed me to become the scholar I am is those those moments of support when you really needed them. And that's why I think your notion of timeliness here, when we talk about, you know, when we need certain things, Kairos is a huge deal, you know, and um, you wanted to find Kairos for the people. Pardon? You want to define Kairos for the people? You know, I don't know about that. Like, I, I you know, it's so funny. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to, I'm going to be careful about how far I, I say what I was trying to find for the people, but what I will yeah, it's say. A fancy, it's a fancy rhetoric word for timeliness. I no, just no, don't want anybody no. to feel. To yeah, feel oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah, no, I don't want to be left out either. And I think that, you know, what I wanted to do is, is, is think about those moments and, and notions of presence that we're in. And when you have a lot of tools and, and that you can use, you can figure out how to look at this moment, take a deep breath and find a grounding so that you can think about what seems to be what we call the fitting response. If we go back to, you know, some rhetorical theory with, you know, uh, Bitzer, but I think that, you know, that fitting response is, is key because you have to think about not only yourself, but your communities and how your decisions are going to impact them, especially when you have certain individual goals. We all have individual goals. I mean, it's like, know that I think individual goals are important. I also think we have to think about how those impact different communities. And that's, that's hard stuff to do, right? Because you don't want to be, you know, paralysis through over analysis. You don't want to be in the place where 
you know, you, you can't move and do anything because you're like, there's too many things. Like it reminds me, oh gosh, there's a television show. that's absolutely amazing. That, um, the good place that my oh yeah mm-hmm. very, very good, uh, friend family member introduced me to. And I remember watching this and then talking about a tomato and if you could buy this tomato, right? Like, because, you know, of all the research. Oh, yeah, it's, the, thought, it's the one right? where he loses. It's the one where he can't get any points, yeah. any ethics <laughs> points because everything, everything screws somebody over. Right, yeah. Right. And that's the hard thing with ethics. It's you're like, oh, God. So you don't want to get to the point where you can't do anything. But the challenge is, is trying to do, you know, do your due diligence. And if you're not ready to make a decision, try not making the decision, you know, trying to give your again. And again, this goes back to the next book on compassionate boundaries, giving yourself the means for self-care, you know, as you look at, you know, the forms you've been taught and, and into remaking the forms so that you have compassionate boundaries for yourself and others uh, to the best of your ability, you know, and that's all we can do and know that we're gonna make mistakes and that's okay. And that's why I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, we've talked about before is this incredible you know, resource to me, you know, is that I'm agnostic. Um, but my kind of my, my, one of my Bibles per se for my work is this site, um, showing up for racial justice, the characteristics of white supremacy, because one of the first items they mention is perfectionism and how in particular perfectionism, you know, we have to shift this conversation to appreciation and recognition that we all make mistakes because else we cannot engage in the humbleness that's needed that even epistemological humbleness, we talk about a field, like we're talking about the way you, you've come to know something. If you can't realize the way you've come to know something might be problematic or it might be only allowing you to see a certain way, you're going to have a really hard time like accepting that you make mistakes too and so does everybody else and being compassionate to that so that you can potentially yeah. coalesce together in the future you know, and build, build on the trust and appreciation that's necessary for relationships. So. Yeah, you read something really lovely in the conclusion of the book, which I, I thought was which was a good move. I was kind of waiting for you to make this move, and I was like, "Oh, she did it so well!" And and that's sort of to talk about. So here's I'll just read 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 you to you. <laughs> All right, so you write you write to embody the democracy we so cherish. We have to rethink who counts as having a voice, whom we expect to do the labor, and how that labor counts, and who quote we are when we talk about quote we the people. All these women in this book deserve a voice. Yet. So do all the people they are institutions, agencies, and organizations silence through their expression and regulations and processes without working not to integrate, but to cooperate with the differences people embody. We will continue to hamstring our collective development into the more perfect union we pride ourselves to be. Gosh, that person sounds really smart. I know. Uh, or wise. No, you know, great. I have my, I have these moments. Uh, yeah, that makes me sound really no, smart. The book is, yeah, the book's great. And, um, and, and that's just <laughs> a nice way, I think, to, to bring what you're talking about with the second book project and the general picture back to the book, which is that there's nothing in this book that's like, yeah, Sarah Palin should be, I mean, it isn't, you know, it's not a book about, you know, shutting no. Sarah Palin down. It's just about, it's just about like what, what her, discourse forecloses at, at its own detriment. Well, it's right? like, it's the, it's looking at the impact. I, mean, I think that's the hard yeah. thing is that, you know, I think all of these women deserve a voice. Like I do. Um, and I, I, I've always been like, let's not censor. Cause that's not, that's just not my bailiwick. That's not what I do. The hard thing is, is we have to think about how that might impact, like what we say may impact everybody else. And, and we hope to instill and encourage people to think about the ethics of those conversations. Like that's the hard thing is that 
I don't, people do not recognize how dehumanizing yeah. sexist, racist, oppressive, you know, um, ageism, all dehumanizing this talk is. And I think that's one of the challenges is that you have a lot of people that, that don't know. Okay. Now I'll be honest with you. It's one thing to not know. It's a total different story when people don't care. So when you tell yeah. somebody, when you're vulnerable enough to say to somebody, this is what, this is my perspective. And their response is not like, I, I am honored that you would share with me. And I didn't realize that me saying this impact, like I, I didn't know. And they're willing to even, you know, come on humble enough to say, Hey, I'm sorry. Like, that's not uh, gosh, you know, cause we've spent so much time on, on, on intent in the field and not enough time. We think about communication ethics, even in our lives, looking at interpretation, looking at um, the way we implement things as well as the impact on, on others. And yeah. if we can figure out that dynamic, those, those actually, those are the four areas of my communication ethics classes. We look at, oh, cool. you know, we look at intent, um, interpretation, implementation and impact so that we can actually start having a conversation, reflective conversation with each other where we're listening compassionately to each other rather than getting, I'll be honest with you, triggered from past, past interactions. And to me, that's where we start connecting with each other to form trusting and appreciation, appreciative based relationships rather than sitting in a place where we just got to hold on to whatever power we have because we're so afraid of the power that's going to seep through your fingers anyway, like sand folks. Like I hate to say this, but like you can try <laughs> yeah, it's to look, it's an illusion. It's an illusion. illusion already. It's yeah. such an illusion that we can hold on to that power. And it's hard. This is hard work. Like don't ever question that sitting in discomfort is hard work, especially when we, we feel like we've screwed up. Like I live in that world. Like I, right now I'm living in a heart, like this is hard stuff to come to terms with. But to me, people are worth the effort. And that's the kind of stuff that I think is really important to consider here is that, you know, this book, it's not about chastising people. Uh, at least I don't yeah. want it to be. What I want it to be. I is don't know, dude. I'll, cha- I'll chastise Ivanka Trump. So <laughs> I'm just going to say it. You don't have to, but like, meh. Well, I think she has freedom of speech, but I don't know that I'm going to co-sign anything that ever came no. out of her mouth. Well, there's a fair argument for that. But I think that the, the thing is, is that I also empathize with the idea that when you've grown up in an environment where you've not been ex- like not been exposed or been socialized to expose to this stuff. And granted, I may be speaking at a turn here because, you know, I, I didn't grow up in her shoes. Uh, but I think that gated communities facilitate this. And I think yeah. that, that's the hard, hard thing here is that, you know, it's a lot of work to take these steps and, and, everybody's going to step at a different rate. Everybody's going to get there at a different, you know, different time. And, and it's not a, you know, I, I don't want to say the it's everybody's on their own journey because the problem is, is that, that that accountability then gets lost. And I think we have to think about that. Yeah. You know, we have to think yeah. about that accountability and, and how we learn sometimes to not say anything. And that's a challenge too. First, even people like me, like I, that's something that, you know, I have to, I'm working on too, is so that I, learn to, you know, lean back. And this is why like Lisa Corgan's work at points, you know, there's something really to be said about finding ways in which we give ourselves breathing room when this stuff is challenging because we are, you know, in a state of discomfort, but 
that's important because that's when we actually start learning. You know, you know, if you're uncomfortable, you're learning when you're really comfortable. We're not learning like that's not (laughs) that's not challenging ourselves or looking at difference and and different learning is all about difference. It really is about learning. You know, if we're lucky difference, we're learning with others. You know, it's not learning from different. It's it's about learning with difference so that we're all learning together, ideally in, in a healthy dynamic where we're not squashing somebody else and they're not squashing us, you know, um, or that, you know, we also have the, the grace to recognize when we screw up and, 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 and to speak up when others screw up. Like when we, when we're like, Oh, that, and by screw up, I mean like something happened there. I'm having an emotional reaction and I'm paying attention to it. And I've, I've got to figure out a way to communicate with you about this. And it's not always going to be pretty. I mean, I, again, Audrey Lord's amazing, you know, the uses of anger, you know, there's times that we are going to be engaging emotions that may be uncomfortable for people, you know, because we don't communicate mm-hmm. the same way. I'm, I'm reminded that all the time that we don't communicate our words, um, the way we, um, you know, emote. All, we don't we don't interpret the same way. And so we have to find ways that uh, through a willingness, our own willingness to keep engaging one another, because we recognize that there people are are beings and they're trying to figure stuff out, too. And it may be different in the way that we figured it out. So Yeah. And with that, I cannot recommend enough that people head out and engage <laughs> Wendy Casey Anderson's book, Rebirthing a Nation, White Women, Identity Politics, and the Internet. And uh, Dr. Anderson's book comes to us from the University Press of Mississippi, hot off the presses, came out in April. And this is just a nice, pleasant reminder, as always, that if you're not interested in grabbing a copy of the book for yourself or someone who might be interested very cool thing to buy a copy, hard copy especially, and donate to a local library. I can imagine this is the kind of book that um, a popular reader would really enjoy. And of course, university libraries, uh, they need books too, public libraries, school libraries. And you know, you can't ask them to buy the book, certainly doesn't hurt, but just remember that you know book budgets are tight these days. But we do want to support the university presses who support authors like Dr. Anderson. And with that, uh, Wendy, do you want to say anything else or Say farewell to the people or maybe yeah. let us know what you're up to with the book. You know what? I'm going to say this. I'm going to say thank you so much for your interest in the work that I'm doing. Um, and I will say, you know, as we consider this book and even my next book that I'm working on, Compassionate Boundaries, I think it's really important that, you know, we give ourselves the grace so that we understand that we're all learning. And that's really, really what I believe when I think about, you know, kind of this process that we're in and, and trying to figure out how to connect with each other is really key. And if we can keep doing that and we keep trying to do the work, even though when, when we're uncomfortable, especially when we're uncomfortable, we have a good chance of, of making some moves about how we practice the politics in which we believe. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. You're as good a speaker as you are a writer. And if there are any, <laughs> there are any bright eyed communication rhetoric, grad students out the cultural studies, graduate students out there who would like to do a book review of Wendy's book. It is, like I said, brand new. So this is a good time to get into it. You can email me rhetorically at gmail.com or find me on social media rhetorically. That's the word rhetoric, L-E-E. And Wendy, if people want to connect with you, do you want them to contact me or is there a place that they can connect with you personally or how do you do that? Oh, that's a great question. Um, uh, you know, right now I think we're, if, if in particular, if we're looking for a book review, I'm going to have them contact you. And, you know, I, if you talk to me, I'll, I'll talk to the publisher about getting a free copy. Um, so that people can review the book. Um, additionally, if they want to be able to reach me, one of the probably easiest ways to connect with me is through my University of Minnesota email account, um, which is W E or I'm sorry, W Z E I T Z at UMN.edu. Um, and that's a great way to connect with me as well. 
All right. And assuming you're not literally sitting there driving with a pen in your hand, I will put um, contact information for both of us in the show notes, as I always do. Well, Wendy, it's been awesome. Dude, I love this book, man. I've, it's beautiful. It's a labor of love. It came out beautifully. It was an excellent read. Can't thank you enough for coming on to talk to us about it. And um, I got dibs. I got dibs on reviewing your next book. Okay. Oh, thank you, Lee. I appreciate that. You're such a sweetheart. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll talk to you soon.